I'm standing between you and lunch, so I'll try and keep it uh, uh, relatively simple and brief. Um, I did a degree in psychology in the early 90s and was immediately fascinated by the brain. As far as I was concerned, the ability to be able to see inside our brain while it's alive, while it's functioning, is, is, um, is absolutely fascinating. And, and, and as soon as we start thinking about disease situations, we obviously can't biopsy a brain. We can't just take a bit of brain out to see what a disease looks like. And so imaging is really the only way we can see inside the brain. Now, in my title, I use this word translating, translate. This is a kind of a buzzword at the moment. And translational neuroscience is something that we're all talking about. So I think it's worth just taking a slide to explain what we mean by translation, translational neuroscience. And it's really uh, depicted um, by this figure. We recognize um, over, over the last decade or so as the sorts of methodologies that we use and the sorts of expertise that accrue around specific ways of assessing the brain get more and more and more complicated, you inevitably get experts uh, in, in different things doing very different sorts of um, experiments. So, for example, Richard will create animal models and look at stem, uh, stem cells and look at cells down a microscope, whereas I will use these complicated imaging machinery. And really, we need to be able to work together. So all of the arrows are about bringing all of the different types of neuroscience investigation to bear on complicated diseases like Alzheimer's disease, like Parkinson's disease. And the idea of it being translational is really that the biggest arrow is, is, uh, is heading towards trying to discover new interventions, trying to discover new diagnostic techniques that will lead to better trials and better treatments. And of course, the information that we learn from the trials and treatments also feeds back into the, to the melee of us all working together to try and solve these problems. And the way that imaging fits into this is, in a, is in, a, in a number of ways. So we can use imaging to a certain extent to try and understand a little bit more about the mechanism. What is it that's going wrong in the brain? Which bit of the brain is affected by different diseases? But imaging is really a rather crude tool for the, mechanis the more mechanistic aspects of, the, of um, the experiment. And so actually we should probably be thinking about imaging more as a kind of a, a diagnostic technique. We can use these sorts of techniques to perhaps predict who's most likely to suffer from uh, dementia. But perhaps we can use imaging to select individuals for particular types of trials for new treatments. And we can also use it in the trials process itself. So if, if a drug is having a good effect uh, on the brain, then we might be able to see it with an imaging technique before we can see it, for example, having an effect on cognition. And imaging, as I already said, is really the only means that we have of looking at the pathology in the brain during, the, during life. And so in Alzheimer's disease, there are a couple of ways that we can see very easily the pathology while people are still alive. You'll, you'll have heard about the hippocampus several times today. You're probably familiar with this structure that's in the, in the, um, in the um, uh, yellow box here. And this is somebody who first presents to the memory clinic uh, with having um, cognitive impairment. And then this is the same person's brain 18 months later and then 36 months later. And so the hippocampus, which is this little structure just here, actually doesn't look too unusual in this case um, uh, on first presentation. But the thing that's very remarkable is how rapidly it deteriorates. So by the time you've got to um, three years, you can see that this uh, 
this hippocampus here is shrunken quite a lot. So the, the rate of deterioration, the rate of shrinkage is something that we can pick up quite easily with techniques like magnetic resonance imaging. More recently, we're now able to actually see the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease using an imaging technique called PET. PET is, uh, stands for positron emission tomography, and it involves the injection of a radioactive um, substance into the blood that's labelled to stick to the sorts of um, pathology that we're interested in seeing in the brain. So there's a way of labelling amyloid. Amyloid is what makes the uh, plaques in the brain. And another type of label that you can inject to see tau, and tau makes the tangles in the brain. So here you can see that what you would see down a microscope, and then um, and this is how this is how somebody's brain would look in a PET scan if you'd labelled the tau. This is somebody with Alzheimer's disease, so you can see lots of bright colours, meaning that there's lots of amyloid around, relative to a control person on the on the uh, right hand side here who has much less amyloid because they don't and they don't have Alzheimer's disease. And likewise, with the tau, you can see much more signal, more bright, brightness in the colours in the person with Alzheimer's disease than the person with, um, with no cognitive impairment. And interestingly, we can see exactly what we expect to see from pathological studies. So the amyloid is kind of everywhere, and not particularly in the hippocampus, whereas the tau is, much, is more selective in where it, it's aggregating, and it particularly targets the hippocampus, which is why we have this bright spot just here. Oops. And the reason all of this is important, as you heard from Alejo's talk earlier on, is that um, what we really need to do in Alzheimer's disease and in all of these diseases that cause dementia is to be able to detect the pathology before the symptoms are obvious. As we all know, these, this pathology is building up before the symptoms are obvious. So imaging is a, is a means by which we can potentially find people before they have cognitive impairment who are most likely to benefit from trials of new protective therapies. So this graph is showing you that um, uh, some, uh, in, when co people are cognitively normal, if they're, if they're likely to get Alzheimer's disease, then the, the, uh, the amyloid and the tau are already building up and uh, before they start getting into the stage of mild cognitive impairment and long before they get to the stage of having functional impairment which would give a diagnosis of dementia. In our own lab we've been developing um, MRI based techniques to try to help this process as well and here are a couple of examples in people who don't have any disease but are at risk of disease. On the, on the left hand side you can see people who are at risk of Alzheimer's disease by virtue of having the APOE4 allele that you heard Alejo talk about earlier. And on the right-hand side, there is the people who are at risk of having Parkinson's disease by virtue of having a, a particular type of sleep disorder. Um, and don't worry about the, the details of what you're seeing here, but the main message is that with these new functional imaging techniques, we can start to see differences in the brains of these people who are at risk before there are any symptoms and without using any of this radioactive um, ionizing radiation. And so these are the sorts of things that we're developing in our lab here in Oxford. But the, the thing that I wanted to talk about today is actually the gap that we have between the sorts of things that we can do in high-end research uh, um, lab environments and what actually happens in the clinic for the most part at the moment. So imaging in the clinic um, is, is, is inevitably some way behind what we can do in a research environment. 
But we are now at the stage, um, since 2006, NICE has recommended that structural imaging should be used in people who are attending memory clinics. Ideally, it should be MRI, and this is so that other pathologies can be ruled out, so there are, we, we can see that there, whether there are any strokes or any tumours that are causing symptoms. If you use high-quality imaging, you'll be able to assist with diagnosis earlier in the process, and crucially, to help us um, distinguish between the different types of dementia. Because when we get to a point, and I hope that we will in the, in the not-too-far-distant future, but when we get to the point of having neuroprotective therapies, ways of protecting our, our, our cognitive health, these are going to be pathology-specific. So we need to know which form of dementia people are going to get as early as we possibly can in order that we can make a difference. But the way that the, um, the imaging is used in the clinic at the moment usually falls into one of, um, one of these two categories. Either people don't get any imaging, or they'll get the simplest sort of structural imaging, which is a CT scan. And that CT scan will be read by a radiologist who will look at the, the scan. You can see that this is a, it, it's not a bad image of the brain, but it's a pretty grey, grainy image that doesn't have a huge amount of information in it. And the sort of information a radiologist will give you will be relatively... Um, minimal and relatively descriptive rather than quantitative. There are no numbers associated with it. So a, a radiologist might say this looks normal for age or they might say it looks like a little bit of pathology, a little bit of atrophy or something like that. In the best cases, um, and there are a few of these around the country, you might um, be able to uh, ask the radiologist to give you a, a quantitative report. So rather than just looking at uh, giving a, a description of what they see, they might be able to give a number to it. So in this case, you're using MRI rather than CT, you might be able to give a number. Give me a score of one to five. How atrophic does this hippocampus look? And um, with MRI, you can also start to look at other types of pathology. This um, image here, you can see the white spots, and those white spots correspond uh, to um, abnormalities in the white matter. So this, this might indicate that somebody has a vascular component to their dementia. And so they, you could give a score to this as well. And that can start to, that, that sort of more quantitative information starts to be much more useful in terms of being able to make this early differential diagnosis. In the very best specialist clinics, and there are only two of these in the country and neither of them are in Oxford, you can um, have quantitative MRI, which means that uh, a clever computer algorithm will be run that will give you a number um, to say how, exactly how big is your hippocampus, exactly how much has it changed if you have um, imaging on more than one occasion. And then you, you could see how if you have a number associated, here's a, here's a number, a typical number, 3.248, well, your average memory clinic clinician isn't going to be able to do much with that number. But if we can start to build up this information so that rather than just getting the number, you can put it on a scale. So this is what this thing is at the bottom here is showing. You can see that this, this individual will be, be well into the green zone. So there's nothing wrong with this person's hippocampus. But if it was smaller compared to people of their of, uh, same sex and similar age, then you might start to get a bit worried that they're on the, on the way to a developing um, cognitive impairment. And then at the very end of the spectrum is the research environment. And now we're, we're really moved out of a clinical environment and we're into a research environment where we can do all sorts of fancy schmancy things that are not quite ready for um, translation to the clinic just yet. 
But the thing that's been frustrating me over the last few years is that there really is a chasm between what's done in, um, in standard clinical care and what we can do in a research laboratory. And there are all sorts of reasons for this, and the obvious ones are things like money. Obviously, it takes a lot of money to do the sorts of things we can do in a research environment, but it's not just about the money, actually, and we can probably get to a point where we can make the cost-benefit um, calculation in, work in our favour. So here, here I start to think about translation again. So here I'm trying to translate what we can do in a research environment into what's useful in a clinical environment. The translational pipeline for imaging looks a bit like this. So you start with the hardcore physics and the maths and um, you'd move that into a, into a basic neuroscience environment where people are trying out brand new things, usually in healthy people. And then you might move that onto the sorts of clinical research that I typically do, where you'll see blobs on brains that don't mean an awful lot to, to an individual patient, but they start to look in interesting and intriguing in a way that we might be able to use them. And then, the, and then the real critical thing is how we get between the clinical research and the clinical practice. And when I started to think about why we have this chasm, it turns out that there are loads of things. There are loads of things we have to do between clinical research and clinical practice. Please don't try and read this whole list. The idea is not to, um, to go through it in detail. It's just that there are a lot of steps. And if I do this on my own, in isolation, with my research team here, this could easily be 10 years of work just for one measure that I might have developed in my, in my research environment. So the thing that I'm most keen on at the moment is thinking about how we can set up the infrastructure to make this translational process easier for everybody. One of the ways in which we're doing this is part of the Dementias Platform UK that Richard would have, will have um, introduced you to earlier. The MRC have set up this big platform and it's, and it's really about bringing together scientists from all over the UK to think about what sort of infrastructure do we need across the board to make um, dementia research uh, go faster. You know, can we get to a point where we have the diagnostics we need and the therapy we need more quickly? What infrastructure do we need to support that? So for imaging, one of the frustrations is that for a long time, people like me have worked in very specialist laboratories, and that's really been because of the computing we need for dealing with this, these large-scale three-dimensional data sets. And until recently, it hasn't been conceivable that you could have a sort of centralized facility for that sort of thing, because the, the specialist um, kit that you need has only really existed in silos in individual research centers. But of course, as you know, computing infrastructure gets bigger and better and, and bolder and faster and, and smaller and every day. And so we really are now at the beginning of an age where we can start to think about bringing these things together. So that when I develop something in my lab, a, a brand new way of analyzing the brain, I can immediately go somewhere and say, now, can I just try this out on your data? I don't have to make individual, individual relationships with people. I can go to a central repository and see, OK, I can see these people over here have got the same sorts of data. Let's see if they'll let me try my thing out on their data without it ca causing them a huge headache, without it causing me a huge headache to make it all easier. So the Dementias platform, is, uh, it, we're setting that up to do exactly that. So the idea is that we'll have a central repository, so anybody who can share their data will go into the central place. But that won't be easy for everybody, so what we'll do is put individual um, um, uh, po pockets, nodes, nodes of our network in the places where the major data sets are. And these are, these are the places where the dementia platform cohorts exist. And then we're going to use our, uh, our um, computing infrastructure to link these up so that we can aggregate the data so that we can make data easily available. It's obviously really important that we do this in a secure way. We have to maintain the governance and the, and the security that was set up around individual cohorts. 
But an example of the sort of, um, of, the sort of work that will go into this is, is, for example, the Whitehall 2 cohort that you just saw Helen talk about. And there are, there are exciting, well-designed um, uh, cohorts around the country. And actually, the people who look after these cohorts are perfectly willing to share the data, but it just hasn't been easy to do that until now. So this is what we're working on. And then more locally, we're building a new facility, a new imaging facility in, in, uh, in Oxford at the Warnford Hospital. This will be... Um, so at the moment, all of our imaging facilities are here in the John Radcliffe Hospital uh, and over at the Churchill Hospital, and we're putting in a new scanner over at the um, Warnford Hospital. And the idea of, of this new facility is to be a sister facility to the very high-end, state-of-the-art um, facility that we have here at the John Radcliffe, which isn't particularly well set up for patient work. So it doesn't have a reception, it doesn't have consulting space, it isn't an easy pace, place to bring patients and carers uh, into. So we're going to have a sister facility, which is the translational arm of, of, of our imaging um, setup in Oxford, with all of the things that we need. And the ambition is to set up a, um, a clinical assessment service there. And so this will start off as a research uh, service. Um, and the ambition is that we will hopefully get to a point where this will be um, considered by the clinical commissioning groups. But a, per, a, a patient can be referred to this, um, to this hypothetical centre, perhaps by their GP, by, perhaps directly from a GP, or maybe even self, be able to self-refer, uh, where people could have a high-quality, state-of-the-art MRI scan, some good neuropsychology, whatever other physical tests are appropriate. We generate a new report, and, uh, and we, we keep things as refined and as simplified as we can, but, but be in a position where we're generating the sort of data that we're going to need in order to make better earlier diagnoses to triage people into particular uh, trials. And an important component of this is that everybody that comes through the door will be asked if they're prepared for their data to be part of a, um, uh, to be available for research and if, uh, and, and without any, uh, any long-winded um, um, information forms or those sorts of things, you can simply say, yes, I'm happy for my data to be used for research and if that's the case, if, if, if no, then that's absolutely fine. But if people are happy for their data to be used, then it can be immediately made available to this wider community so that rather than testing our new imaging techniques only in very well-characterized, highly selected cohorts, we're actually able to test them in the real world, in the, in, the, in the situation where we don't necessarily know the diagnosis yet, but maybe we'll know it in a few years. And so these are the sorts of infrastructure things we need in order to be able to translate this work. So um, uh, just to summarize, the, um, the frustration that I have really comes from the fact that we have very, very high quality advances in brain imaging in the UK in general, but and particularly in Oxford. And these things rarely make their way into clinical service. And um, me and my group are thinking hard about how we improve that translation. Part of the problem is infrastructure, and it's very exciting to be at the at dawn of a new era with the um, dementias platform um, so that we can start to address these things. And just again to leave you with the idea that imaging is our window into the living brain and is really an essential part of the whole, which is the experimental armory and all of that translational neuroscience that we need to bring together for um, uh, complex diseases. And just before I finish, um, uh, you're asked to fill in uh, uh, to, um, uh, whether you'd like to participate in all sorts of things. I think almost every talk today is, has an associated thing that you can fill in to say that you're interested. But I just want to tell you about Friends of Oxdare that some of you might have um, come across in the, in the hall, uh, in the break. Oxdare is a local um, 
grouping set up by the NIHR here to coordinate dementia research in Oxford. If you'd like to keep abreast of what's going on in Oxford, we put out um, uh, newsletters every six months or so. This is another opportunity to potentially participate in research. This is not in competition with joint dementia research at all. This is a, this is a much more local um, uh, operation and, uh, and you might be able to get involved, for example, not just in the research, but also focus groups around designing research and that sort of thing. So please join, join Dementia Research, but please also sign up to uh, Oxdare um, uh, if you can. And I, I've, I see that there's a pile of leaflets at the end here, and there's probably also at all of the entrances, thank you, there are piles of leaflets that you can pick up and post back at any time. Thank you very much. I, I was just asked to repeat the question. So the question is re really around the cost of PET scanning. Um, and whether we have any evidence yet that MRI scanning, which is considerably cheaper, can replace the, the, the more costly um, uh, PET scanning. And I think that uh, at the moment, it's very clear that the gold standard for seeing the pathology in life is um, PET. But, but, but the, very, the, very much the, um, um, the aim of my research group is to try to find new techniques using MRI that can start to mimic what we see with PET. So a PET scan, the, the sort that I showed you, costs about £2,000 a go, and it involves injecting a radioactive isotope. And as you, as you rightly point out, you have to have very specialist facilities in order to create these ligands in the first place. An MRI scan costs you three or £400, um, and there's no radioactive isotope involved. So it would be really good if we can find ways of doing that. But actually, uh, another answer to your question is, is that even that, the three or four hundred pounds is also very expensive. So really, ideally, we want to be using the sorts of blood-based biomarkers that Alejo talked about and relating them to what we can see with amyloid. And in the end, the best we can do is probably going to be a combination of all of the above. But yeah, we're very much working on trying to reduce the, the burden. Would you like to ask the second question? Yep. Um, are we using now a combination of CT So that's exactly what does happen. So the latest PET scanners are either PET-CT or PET-MR. So you do get both at the same time. So you don't have to pay twice. You're paying whichever the highest cost is. What I wanted to ask about, and also to suggest, is that something needs to be done at the end that you were referring to right at the end of the talk and others uh, have referred to. If action is essential to arrest dementia, rather than curing. Mm. It must come early. Correct. The nature of what GPs do isn't much better than Lloyd Bank asking me on the phone for my security details. Now, how are you going to cross that divide? It seems to me it actually needs a sort of education or research program in order not just to get across what you can do, but what they can do that then relate. I think that's a really good point, and uh, and it's uh, it's sort of part of. Um, I'm not sure it was on my list of things that are the the problems with translation, but definitely a big part of the problem is that 
when we're sitting in our ivory towers and developing our, our, our fancy schmancy ways of doing things, one of the things we miss out is that there's an enormous role for education, not just of the, the patients and the carers, but also of the, of the healthcare um, um, the healthcare givers at all levels of the tree. I think you're absolutely right that GPs are, are, have a critical role here. And one of the things that we're, that we're hoping to establish in, the, in, the, um, in, in setting up this assessment centre is a way that we can engage with um, uh, old age psychiatrists who are running memory clinics, but also with the GPs themselves to develop something that we can tell them that they can actually use and interpret and deliver information that will go back to the patient and their carer that isn't just bamboozling. And I think there's a, we have a long way to go to achieve that. So I think it's a really good point.